you have a Bible? If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 32 this morning. The church is a people of God who assemble together, who gather together. We are formed by the gospel. This is the message that breathes life into us. And we are fueled by the gospel. And as a gospel people, we need to hear and be reminded of the great gospel truths that we find in the Word of God. So each week we turn there. We need to gather in communities. This is why we gather together big on Sundays. This is why we get smaller in home groups. So we encourage you to be faithful to those as well. Because as a gospel people, we care about those things deeply. Genesis chapter 32 is our text this morning. And if you will join me in prayer as we hear from the word of the Lord. God, prepare our hearts and open up our eyes so we may see glorious truths in your word. Only you can do that. Because we are sinful and blind and famously blind to the sins of our own lives. So God, we pray that you'd open our eyes. Most importantly, God, we pray that you'd show us yourself. That no one would have left this word, closing this book this morning in our, after our time together and have not worshipped you. And so God, we pray that you bring that about. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Genesis 32, if you remember where we're at, where we've come from, you know that Jacob has opponents behind him. We've spent a long time talking about Laban and his life and, and actually his kind of uh, battle against Jacob, battle for lots of different things, but we'd say that most definitely that Laban has been an opponent of Jacob, always looking out for his own good. But the prospects before Jacob, as he's asked to leave Laban, don't get much better because we know that what lies in front of Jacob is another opponent, that being Esau. And so Jacob finds himself in between this fight. He's, he's in between a rock and a hard place. He, he can't go back. He just made a treaty with Laban that he's not to cross that border again. Laban could surely overpower him. He might not want to go forward. Indeed, he seems like he's distressed and in fear about this because he knows the last time he left Esau that Esau wanted to kill him, to crush him. And so what do you do when you find yourself with opponents all the way around you? How do you handle that situation? And I think that it gets even more complicated when there's kind of an unexpected opponent that you didn't know was coming. Surely Jacob didn't see what was in front of him as an unexpected opponent starts a fight with him. And in this strange story in Genesis chapter 32 where God wrestles Jacob... God is preparing Jacob. He is getting him ready to enter into the promised land. And God's wrestling of Jacob is in a way a showing that Jacob's biggest opponent wasn't before him and it wasn't behind him. Instead, it was within him. It was Jacob himself, one of his biggest opponents, and ours is too. We like to think all the time because it brings us comfort and relief in some ways that our biggest problem is something that is out there. Our biggest problem is something that is outside of us But it's not true. Not according to the scripture. That our biggest problem is us. Our biggest problem is our own sin. That comes from out of the desires of our hearts. And so what God has to do with Jacob is he has to prepare him. He He has to reconcile him. He has to bring resolution to this for him to enter in the promised land. And he does this using his severe mercy because Jacob's state isn't right for him to go in. God has to do something like that for us too to enter into His kingdom. Because our natural state, 
Our sinful nature won't do. We're not ready. We can't do it. We can't go in that way. So the question is, how does God go about resolving those issues? How does He go about reconciling these problems and the opponents around us, but also within us? And so we find Jacob with, with Laban in the rearview mirror. He set his face toward the promised land. He knows he's going to have to face Esau, so now what's he to do? And before he meets Esau, he has a surprise visit. Not the one you're thinking of yet, but if you look in Genesis 32, starting in verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the place of that place Mahanaim. So here we have this uh, meeting that he didn't expect. And it kind of sets the tone for the entire passage. It sets a couple different tones. It sets a tone of caution. Because sometimes in this word met is, is an ambiguous word. Oftentimes it can, it can have threat with it. And he met them and there's this threatening sense to it. The angels of God aren't fluffy, happy, best friend angels all the time. Often in scriptures it is... A lot more tense than that. That you need to fear these beings. You need to fear these angels. And there's a tone of that. There's a sense of that here. That Jacob has met these angels. And that there's a tone of caution. Proceed carefully as you go from here. I think that is clear. That this is part of the connotation here. But it's also a tone of protection. Remember God had promised. He goes into the promised land. And I will be with you. He did this over and over again for Jacob. He said go and I will be with you. And so once again he he gets a a sign. Like a symbol. Like visible in front of him. Of God's presence. His protection with him. As he goes forward. And so you kind of get both tones. A tone of caution. And a tone of protection. And he's going to need both. Because he is being prepared for what's ahead. And what's ahead is verse 3. He sends messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir. The country of Edom. And he's instructing them, because he knows Esau is in front of them. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Notice all of his language is very kind. Thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob is taking a really, really kind posture. A posture of reconciliation it seems. Like he wants to make things right with Esau and he knows that things are really, really bad. And so one of the things he's going to try to do to get on his good graces is to give him things. And he knows, he says, my Lord and I'm your servant. He's doing all these kind language. Why? Because ever since the beginning he has struggled with Esau. And you remember, even in the womb, they were struggling together. They're at war in the womb. In other words, Jacob and Esau have never known peace in their lives. They don't know what that's like. It's never happened for them. They've had sibling rivalry from the beginning. And so Jacob grows up and deceives Esau, kind of tricks him out of his birthright. Then he tricks his dad to obtain the blessing that should have been to the firstborn Esau. And so the last we saw from Esau, the last of his thoughts that we know of, are that Esau wants to kill his brother. There's no love lost there. He wants him dead. And so that's why Jacob comes to Esau saying, I'm your servant, you're my Lord, I'm going to give you all this. I want to find favor in your sight. And yet, we still get verse 6. The messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Once again, that word meet, that term meet is, is ambiguous and can be ambiguous. So this could be a very, very threatening thing. That it's not like maybe they're coming over for a friendly chat and all like this could be a, a harsh meeting. And he's coming, it says, with 
400. And so this is an ominous thing. It's a threatening thing. And so while there might be a good sign that the messengers return safely, it almost might be an ominous sign that there's some uncertainty with them. And they don't have any other message other than that he's coming. He has 400 men with him. He doesn't give any gifts to them. There's no news. The news is Esau's coming. He has 400 men. This is the number of a militia, right? I mean, this is a big number, a number of a battle line. And so you can see how Jacob would go where he goes in verse 7, that he was greatly afraid and distressed. And so he divides the people who are with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So he, he can't turn back. That would be to violate, violate his treaty with Laban. Plus, who wants to go back with Laban anyway? Even if he could overpower him. It doesn't seem like going forward is very good because what's coming at him is a man who wanted him dead last time he knew and he's bringing 400 men now. And so what's he to do? So he starts thinking and he, he thinks, uh, let's mitigate losses here. Let, let's try to decrease losses if that's what it's going to come to. Let's mitigate the losses. Let's divide the camp. It's a decent strategy, right? It seems like, like good reasoning here from him. And this is typical Jacob. He's got a problem and he's going to start scheming, working to get out of this problem. That's what he's going about doing. But remember, what helped Jacob with Laban? Sure, he had a plan. But what was the deciding factor in Jacob's prevailing over Laban? It wasn't all of his scheming. It wasn't all of his work. It wasn't all of his strength. It wasn't all of those things. It wasn't his even deceitful nature. No, we remember that it was God who was on his side. And so you, you could also bring to this text, like, it, man, if, if God is on his side, what, what need do you have to be worried? What need do you have to be anxious? Why do you need to work your way out of this? And so while we might understand that his fear is reasonable, it doesn't make it godly. But Jacob does something uncharacteristic with that fear. And he, he takes that fear and he takes it to the Lord. If you look in verse 9, the text says this, that Jacob said, Oh God, he's praying to God. Oh God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac. Oh Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servants. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. A man whose life has so easily, slam dunk case, been characterized as prayerlessness of his own striving. He's, he's infamous in Haran for, for not relying upon the Lord, for just trying his own schemes and his own plans, finally turns to the Lord and he confesses his own unworthiness to come before the Lord. He, he confesses that he doesn't deserve anything from God. It, it, it seems as if we're seeing as he prays like this shift spiritually for him that's going on in his life. He traces in this prayer, the provision and the protection of his life, not back to his own scheming, not back to his own work, but back to God, the God of his fathers, the one that he seems to be trusting more and more and more. And so he gives this honest prayer, this honest and true confession. He sees finally, maybe, his need for God. Deliver me. That's what he says. 
His confession is on point. He repeats God's promises back to him, which is always a good thing in prayer because you're saying things that God Himself is saying, I'm willing to do these things. And He says, you've, you've said this, God. He's reminding Himself of the truth. He's bringing it before God. He says, God, this is what you said. And so in many ways, Jacob's prayer, which is the longest in the book of Genesis, Jacob's prayer is a model prayer for us. Even if fear is driving this prayer, at least he takes his fear to the right place. He takes it to the Lord. And it's a good direction that he's moving. But we don't know what happens from here. Maybe God doesn't answer his prayer. He doesn't hear anything from God. He just prays. He pours out his heart and that's it. Maybe he still fears greatly. Or or maybe he doesn't know what else to do. Because here we see in verse 13, it seems like he goes back to some more scheming and work. He stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Notice how much Jacob has. Where does all this come from? God was with him. God had blessed him. He came to Laban. He went to Haran with nothing. And look at how much he's willing to, as he's going to say, he's he's willing to give these things away. And so what he's doing here is he's setting aside a very sizable gift in order to appease Esau. He wants to pacify any sort of bloodthirst that might be in his brother's heart. And so perhaps this is an attempt for him in a sense to like make things right. Or maybe even to say, like, here's the blessing that I stole from you. You can have it back. I don't want it. We want peace. And so he instructs these servants, starting in verse 16. Here's what you need to say to them. He handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant. Once again, your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with a present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps... He will accept me. And so he's bringing wave after wave of gifts, of kind words to appease him so that he might find acceptance in his sight. And so with this strategy, his camp, a large portion of his camp, is ahead of him, is in front of him. Drove after drove in front of him that he might appease and find acceptance in his brother's eyes. And there's more that's going to go ahead of him. You keep going on. Verse 21 says the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. And that same night, he arose and he took two, his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So all of his stuff, all of his possessions, even all of his family, but he himself go across the Jabbok River. This sounds like a place... From Star Wars. Jabbok. Like a creature or a place. Jabbok. That just sounds... I'm thinking Star Wars there. Jabbok River. And this is an important place. So hopefully 
that gets it set in our minds. The Jabbok is an important place. It doesn't seem like when we read that, just another name that we read over. It's an important place for the Israelites. It would have been an important place for the, the readers who were looking at this. The Jabbok River was important because this would have been a boundary marker of the promised land in some ways. So we see this in Joshua 12. It says in verse 1 2, Now these are the kings of the land. This is Joshua's conquest into the promised land. Whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all of Araba eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead. So in other words, like there is a boundary marker, it's a natural boundary, it's this river, it's a stream between the Ammonites and the people in the promised land that they had been given by the Lord. So this is a natural boundary for the promised land. And this is going to be important in this text because this is a place that, that Jacob has not yet crossed over into the promised land kind of officially and he's all alone. And you can tell there's some emphasis in the text that Jacob is all by himself. Everything went across this river. Everything crossed the border But Jacob himself stayed behind. It seems like an interesting detail, like why is he staying behind? But either way, we know that Jacob is all alone. He's away from his possessions. He's away from all protection. And that all matters. Because while he's alone, while he's on this boundary marker of the promised land, we read at the end of verse 24 that as he's left alone, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And that is maybe the calmest way you can say that because what happens here is that Jacob gets attacked in the middle of the night. A man attacks him. A surprise attack in the middle of the night when he's all alone, in the dark. There's no other way to describe that. He is attacked. A man jumps on him and starts wrestling him. Now before your mind goes, like this is not WWE Raw or whatever. Like this is not Sting coming out of the rafters. This is not a a, a wrestling ring with ropes around the corners. This is is a little bit more real than that. It's real hand-to-hand combat. They're going to go after it together. And this this wrestling, it goes on all night, it says. He's wrestling with this man all night. And I guess, I'm assuming that Jacob is a pretty decent wrestler. Because we read in verse 25. I don't know if he had some practice when he's being a shepherd. If he's trying to take on some rams every now and then, working on his moves. But in verse 25, it says that when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Now that just seems unfair. You can't just do this. Like how do you, how do you, what move is that? How do you practice that one? Now, this was in our home group. We used to watch some, some YouTube videos after after our group sometimes. And so if you're a group leader out there, this might be this week's group for you. Just, just put it out there that, that I've seen some illegal moves. In fact, the most illegal move in wrestling, just YouTube this, where, where Osirian Portal, you can see what they do to, the, to these, these other wrestlers where they use hypnosis. That was called the most illegal. But this seems like a pretty bad move. Like, how do you do this? Like, you just, all of a sudden, now nowhere, you're wrestling together and you just pop his hip out of socket. Like, that seems unfair. That does not seem right. And if you're familiar with real wrestling, then you will know that the hip is an important thing. That they are crucial in wrestling. That without the hip, now, there is no chance for Jacob to win. You cannot win a wrestling match 
If you do not have hips, like if you don't have your hip in place, there's no chance of winning. And so here we have Jacob, who's kind of known for his strength, his own work, all these kind of things. Now he is disabled with one touch. And wrestling, all of his wrestling strength is evaporated by just a simple touch, and his hip is out of socket. Who is capable of doing such a thing? Who can just touch someone and displace their hip? Like this is not normal. I have not seen that move. Even if you look for the most illegal move, you're not going to see someone who just barely touches someone and their hip is out of place. Like, who can do this? I think that Jacob is recognizing, maybe even at this touch he recognizes very, very well, as we're going to see in verse 30, he's going to say it for himself, that the man that he is wrestling is God. Verse 30, he admits this. He says that this is God. So... This is not normal. This is God he is wrestling with. So, God is wrestling with Jacob. What is going on here? Like, there have been a lot of strange stories in Genesis. Right? I mean, I admit, like the Mandrake story with Jacob and his, and his wives and two other... Like, that's weird. But, but a man attacks him in the middle of the night and starts wrestling at him. That's already a strange story. And then that man turns out to be God and this hip. Oh, this is all really strange. And so what are we, what are we to say about this? We, we know that Abraham had an encounter with God. Some strange sort of what we call theophany. And theophany would mean that, that God manifests some sort of physical presence. This is what he does here. That he has an encounter with God. Now, we have to be careful because we don't know. Like People would like to say, is this Jesus he's wrestling with? I don't know. We don't know. We have to be careful. All that we know is that God has somehow manifested Himself physically and actually started wrestling with Jacob. And then you have all sorts of, of questions that follow on top of that. So like if this is God, right? kids know this instinctively. They start saying like, well, I'm stronger than you. I'm stronger than you. No, God's the strongest. Trump card. You, you lose because God's really the strongest. Right? We know this, right? If this is God... And he can clearly overpower Jacob just by the touch of his hand. He can knock his hip out of joint. Then why doesn't he prevail? Because that's what it says, right? Verse 25 says that when the man saw he didn't prevail against Jacob, I'm thinking like, how could God not prevail? We, we had a, a kind of kid's thing around the whole idea that the name of it was called God Always Wins. So are we feeding our kids lies or what is going on here in verse 25? We're not feeding our kids lies, at least to the best of our knowledge. Surely God could have prevailed. Obviously He could have prevailed. He touches His hip and He's done. Right? God could have prevailed here. And so what's going on? God has, in some ways, limited Himself. Made Himself almost like an equal with Jacob as He's wrestling him. And and the thought shouldn't be too distant from our mind because this is like God, isn't it? Philippians 2, what does it say about God? He he was in the form, He's the nature of God, He's with God. He has no need for anything. And what does He do in Philippians 2? He humbles Himself to be with us. He adds to His divinity. He adds humanity to His divinity. To His deity, He adds humanity. He, He comes to be with us. But you still have to think, like, what in the world? What purpose could there have been? Like, where's not the the laser beams of, like, zap him with your grace, and then, like, let's skip all of these strange stories again. That question comes back to mind. What purpose would God have for this wrestling match? Why does God do it? And so with Jacob's hip out of joint, 
and Jacob kind of stops wrestling and starts clinging to God, do we, do we get the hints from the text of what God is up to? That is, so we could say a lot of things why God, God does this, but we're going to let the text lead us into this. Because he says, verse 26, he said to him, Let me go, for the day has broken. Say, this man who's wrestling with Jacob says, Let me go, the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. These details all matter. That night matters. So this man is, is somewhat concealed in the middle of the dark, wrestling all night matters. The daylight is coming soon, so he says, You've got to let me go. We're done with this. But Jacob, what does he do? He clings on for dear life. He just holds on. He can't win anymore. His hip's out of place. There's no chance of that. And so he just clings on for dear life. And he asks this man, He asks him, Bless me. Now that's interesting. We might ask for a blessing from a lot of people, but this is really telling when Jacob says, you need to bless me. Because when you ask for a blessing in this time for sure, you would always ask it from an inferior to a superior. It doesn't go the other way. In other words, Jacob is recognizing, probably when his hip gets knocked out of his joint, like something is here that is much, much greater than me. So much so that I need this person and I need them to bless me. I will just hold on and cling on to them just so I can get that because he realizes in a sense his own inferiority and the man he's wrestling superiority. So here we have Jacob. He is stripped of everything. All of his possessions, all of his protection is gone. And he's clinging tightly for a blessing. And it seems strange that at this point in this wrestling match that the man asks him a question. He says, what is your name? And most of the time, like you, we have arenas, people are watching, you run out, you sell your name. Like Everybody knows who we're battling. But at this point, kind of when the match is over, he's like, well, what's your name? And you introduce and then fight, but that's not how this one goes. And he says, Jacob. Now names to us are identification. And, and they were for them as well, but they're more than that. There's, there's, there's a deeper thing than just identification. They weren't just identification, they were identity. They were giving character to that person. They were more than just, here's who you are. It's also, here's your character. This is your identity. Jacob's name. I mean, we see it especially with Jacob's name. What's his name mean? Heel grabber. Deceiver. He's been doing this all along through his life. He wasn't just called heel grabber. He was from the womb. He isn't just called this one who deceives, who hangs on to any opportunity he can. He does this consistently throughout his life. So his name is not just an identification. It characterizes him as a person. Over and over again in Jacob's life, you see this. He is this person. He's not just Jacob the name. That is who he is. He's a deceiver. And so in some ways, verse 27 could have been an embarrassing name. Who are you? And oh man, now I have to tell this one who I know is a superior to me who I am. Jacob. Maybe it's an admission of guilt, a confession. I'm, I'm Jacob. This is, this is who I am. But he is Jacob no more, starting in verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now this renaming is significant. As you know, if the name is more than just an identification, then his renaming is more than just like, here's a new name for you to go on. He's re-identifying him. He is changing his name. In other words, he's signaling that your identity, that your character is now being changed. You are being transformed. You are being shifted. 
Rather than one who works, who deceives, who plans, who schemes, who tricks, you are now one who strives with God for His blessing. That's who you are now. So the renaming is significant because it's it's signaling a, a change in direction, a change in character, a needed change for a deceiver, for a heel grabber. He continues on, verse 29, And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God. There he admits, like this man I've been wrestling is God. I've seen him face to face, and yet... My life has been delivered. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because, touch, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So it seems as if the, the dark matters. That not giving him his name matters. That is, that, that his face is too wonderful for him to see in daylight. That his name is too wonderful for Jacob to hear. But he still came. And manifested himself. And revealed himself to Jacob. So Jacob turns around and responds. And he names the place. To remember what was going on. I don't know that you would need to name it at this point. When a man attacks you in the middle of the night, you're probably going to remember it. But he names the place to remember this encounter. I think that the limp would also do it that he has now, that he's going to have for the rest of his life, this limp. And the Israelites would have remembered it every time they, they cut into a piece of meat, when they cut into this leg and the thigh and this hip, they would remember this is what happened. Such a strange story. I, uh, this just like continues on with this amazing saga of Jacob's life. It twists and turns, and we go from one degree of crazy to another. A man jumps him in the middle of the night, and I have all sorts of questions. <laughs> what is happening? But what's here for us? Right? Do we learn here, like, here's how to get ready to wrestle with God. First, send everything away from you. Then camp in the middle of the night alone, and, and then wait for God to come. But be really ready, because He's good. Right? Is this like a... Here's how you prevail against God. He might get your hip or, or other key points in your body, but just, just hang on as hard as you can and just tell Him your name if He asks. And, you know, is that what's going on here? Hey, what do we do when, when, when your hip is out of place? Is that what He's teaching us? So when your hip's out of place, here's the technique you need to use. Or, or how do you get your name changed? Like how does God change your name? Well, you just hang on. Or do we learn... Here, Jacob wrestles with God and you can too. So like, let's, let's figure this out. No, what we do, as we always do, is we let the text lead us into these things. And the text gives us so many interesting little details that give us evidence that there's more here than all those little things for us. And people go all sorts of ways with this text. There's more for us. There's all sorts of details. The detail of which side of the Jabbok River he's on. That matters. That that Jacob, that all of his possessions, that all of his people, that all of his protection was gone. That his hip is broken. That his name is changed. That he used the words prevailing over and over again. You've prevailed. Or you, he could not prevail against him. Being blessed and then limping along his way because of this hip. All of that matters. That is, I think that God is doing something. I think that God is preparing Jacob. He's working on Jacob. He's changing Jacob before he can go forward into the promised land. That is, before he can go into the promised land, he needs for him to be Israel and not Jacob. He's intentional with making sure that happens before he crosses the river. And so he stays alone in the dark. And so God moves him from a person defined by deceit 
by work, by self-sufficiency, by prayerlessness, into a man who clings to God, relying upon Him for a blessing. So he attacks him. And he wrestles him. On, on his own level, he breaks his hip. He blesses him. He changes his name all along the way, preparing him to go into the promised land as he intends. So once again, what's here for us? We're not going into the promised land. But we are invited, clearly in the Scripture, invited into the kingdom of God here and now. That is life with God. We've been invited into life with God under His good reign and His good rule. And there's a preparation needed for that. There's a change that's needed for that. We can't go in like Jacob. We are very much like Jacob in our nature, in our, in our sinful state. As we are born, we're like Jacob. We can be deceitful. We can be sinful. We're defined by our own work. We're defined by not needing God, by our prayerlessness. All of these things define us. And there's a preparation that has to take place in order for us for to enter into this kingdom. Because here's the reality, is that self-sufficient people can't enter the kingdom. Self-made men don't go in. Those defined by deceit, those defined by the fear of man, those defined by their own efforts aren't there. God wants those who limp. He wants those who stop wrestling and just start clinging on to God. In other words, God wants reliant people. People that aren't independent, self-sufficient, think that they can do it, have no need. He wants people that are fully relying upon Him. Amen. I could, we could walk through Scripture all day long and point these out. I will look at a few. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My word. That is the people who know their need for God and who take His word so seriously because they need Him so badly. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are not the strong, not the great, not all those things that we would normally put in there. Here's the people that are blessed, the poor in spirit. And theirs is the kingdom of God. That is, blessed are the people who are completely spiritually bankrupt, who are spiritually needy, who recognize in themselves how much they need God, how desperate they are before God, and look to Him for help, who put out the help wanted sign, who say, God, I can't do this, you have to. Those are the blessed ones. In Matthew chapter 19, we, we're probably familiar with this one as well. He says, Jesus says to them, let the little children come to me. Why does he say that? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now kids are a lot of things. Lots of things. But they are completely reliant. Oh, we know this all too well. Can you do anything on your own? Just any, like one thing. Do one thing on your own, please. <laughs> No, they are completely reliant. We have got to come to terms with the reality for which God points us to consistently, the reality in front of us consistently, that we are not worthy to enter into the kingdom, that we are not worthy to be called children of God. We are the same as Jacob. That is, we cannot earn our place. We can't get in with our own effort and our own work. We can't deceitfully put forth a good effort and a good showing and say, surely this is enough for God. No, the way into the kingdom, Jesus says, is narrow. So narrow, I think, that only one of them could do it. Only one could get in. And that was Jesus. 
He's the only one that could have earned his way in. And then he turns around and says, no, I am the way. It's, it's so narrow that I'm the only way. And so he is the way in the sense that we have to fully rely on Jesus to enter in. So the question then becomes, how do we get from our natural, sinful, independent, self-sufficient lives to being fully reliant upon God? Well, God will at times employ what He employs here with Jacob. And that would be His severe mercy. I think each word of that matters. It's not my phrase, but it works well. Severe mercy. That is, God is severe. He attacks a man in the middle of the night. There's no way around that. God attacks him in the middle of the night when he's all alone. God attacks him. He, he breaks his hip. That's severe. I've never had my hip broken. No one has done that. That's like, that's severe. You don't just go to those measures for any reason. He strips Jacob of everything. All of his possessions. All of his protection. It's all gone. And so you have to question, is God fighting against him? And the answer is yes. He is teaching him that you cannot reach the promised land. You cannot enter the promised land with human effort, with human scheming. He is teaching him, you have to rely upon God. And so he breaks his hip, severe mercy, severe to get him there. But it is mercy, is it not? That God attacks him in the middle of the night and breaks his hip. Is God fighting against him? Yes. Is God fighting for him? Yes. That is that God appears. Once again, God comes to him. And he doesn't crush him. He wrestles him. He, he blesses him. And he overpowers him so clearly, showing that he's still number one, that he's still supreme, that he is the best wrestler around. But he leaves him. Instead of dead, limping, forever, reminding him that there's one greater than you to be relied upon for the rest of your life. He prepares him, changing his walk and his name that he may enter into the promised land in the way, in the manner that God has so deemed fit. He uses severe mercy often. We see it with Elijah. He strips Elijah of everything. Elijah wants to die. And God leaves him with just himself. Does this with Paul? Paul went through everything. And then he gives him a thorn. And what is he teaching him all along? One author, one pastor said this way. That's how God works. He gets at our most fundamental idolatry and He ruthlessly crushes it in His unfathomable love, fatherly kindness, and inscrutable wisdom. And He goes after our greatest treasures and He leaves us with nothing but Himself so we go limping on our way for the rest of our lives having learned. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Do we not see severe mercy at the cross? Severe. What does Isaiah 53 say? That the Father crushed Him. It was the will of God to crush the Son. That is severe. Mercy. Do we not see mercy? That He dies in the place of sinners. That He dies for us. And in light of such truths about God, we should be able to say to God, do the worst if needed to change me. Do what's 
necessary. Attack me in the middle of the night if that's what I need. If you're going to break me from my self-sufficiency, take my hip out if that's what's needed. Crush me. Fight against me. Break me. Because I know that you're kind. I know that all your severity is met with mercy. That this is a God whose hands we can trust. Even if He breaks us, we can trust Him. We need God to do this. And at times, it needs to get more severe than what we would ever want or probably would ever ask for and that we could ever do on our own. Because the reality is, I know in my own life that there is far too much strutting and far too less limping. Far too much wrestling. And far too little clinging to God. But then the mercy of God appears. And it's strange at times. It's severe. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night, seemingly when everything is against me, when I'm all alone. We feel like the enemy is on either side. We have no place to go. And then another one comes out and starts breaking hips. And it reminds us again and again that the biggest problem isn't something that's just out there. But there's a problem in here. But it also reminds us of the solution. But that's not in there, but it's in front of us. It's God Himself. You see how that happens? That God comes and He breaks, but He's also the solution. Preparing Him and sending Him on His way. God Himself is the solution. And so now, we can stop strutting, we can stop wrestling, and we can instead start limping. Gloriously limping. We can just start clinging on to God. Gloriously, without hope of prevailing whatsoever, just clinging to Him for dear life. Are you limping? Are you clinging to this God? Or are you still strutting and wrestling? And just like Jacob, there's, there's only one way into this kingdom. There's only one way in. It's all the way to the ground. And it's actually impossible for us to attain on our own. But God humbled Himself to be with us. To go ahead of us. To show us the way and to Himself be the way. That is, that the way in is through Jesus. We're reminded of this every time we take the Lord's Supper. That God has put a meal before us, a banquet, a feast, one that we didn't deserve. Because He's already gone ahead of us. And He's welcomed us in. Come. You haven't deserved this or earned it. I I bought this for you. Come. Come into this place. I've made the way. I am the way. And so at the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of those realities. That one has gone ahead of us. That He lived the life that we should have lived, but we never could attain. That He died the death that we deserve to die, showing both His severity and His mercy at the cross. And that He welcomes us in to respond. One of our responses is trusting in Him with all of our lives. Relying upon Him fully. One of our responses is responding in faith by taking this meal. And saying that what Jesus has done actually worked. That He has accomplished what He set out to accomplish. And that He will do it again soon. So if you're a believer, come. Enjoy. Be reminded of these truths. Rejoice in what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, we'll pray for severe mercy if that's what is needed. For God to do some 
serious action. But we want you to rely upon Jesus. Trust in Him. Cast yourself upon Him that you might be welcomed in. And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. Don't take it now. Take it after trusting in Jesus. So let's pray together and then we'll take this meal as a family. Father, thank You for doing what's necessary to crush what's necessary in our lives. We are so blinded to our own self-sufficiency. Jacob has reminded me that I think I'm awesome, but that I need to be broken. God, in, in all of our lives where that needs to happen, I ask that You do it. And I really trust that although it may be severe, it is met with so much mercy that You are the one whose hands in the Scripture are so clear, the ones that break but also bind. And so I entrust myself and these people to Your care. You are the Good Shepherd. You know how to treat Your sheep. And so do what's necessary to rip back from our lives all things that we're relying upon that aren't You. And God, insert Yourself in our hearts. Be the one we fully rely upon. And not just now, but later as well. Every day may we know that we rely upon fully upon You. So God, I pray for those who don't know You. Break them if necessary. Do the, the appropriate change needed for them to enter the kingdom. Show them Yourself. Show them the glory that You revealed in Your Son and in His message. And God, bring them to Yourself. God, as a family today... We're taking your meal that you told us to to take, to be reminded of these truths. God, may we rejoice in this meal. And as we look around at one another, as we sing together, as we take this meal together, may we be encouraged by one another's faith. May we be encouraged by the work that you have done that has affected so many. And may we fully rely upon you together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.